You're listening to a sermon podcast from Redemption Hill Church, recorded at one of our worship services. Good morning, everyone. Today we'll be reading from 1 Samuel chapter 4, uh, verse 1b to the end of the chapter, 20, to verse 22. Now Israel went out to battle against the Philistines. They had encamped at Ebenezer, and the Philistines encamped at Aphek. The Philistines drew up in line against Israel, and when the battle spread, Israel was defeated before the Philistines, who killed about 4,000 men on the field of battle. And when the people came to camp, the elders of Israel said, Why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? Let us bring the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord here from Shiloh, that it may come among us and save us from the power of our enemies. So the people sent to Shiloh and brought from there the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of Hosts, who is enthroned on the cherubim, And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were there with the Ark of the Covenant of God. As soon as the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord came into the camp, all Israel gave a mighty shout so that the earth resounded. And when the Philistines heard the noise of the shouting, they said, What does this great shouting in the camp of the Hebrews mean? And when they learned that the Ark of the Lord had come to the camp, the Philistines were afraid, for they said, A god has come into the camp. And they said, Woe to us, for nothing like this has happened before. Woe to us. Who can deliver us from the power of these mighty gods? These are the gods who struck the Egyptians with every sort of plague in the wilderness. Take courage and be men, O Philistines, lest you become slaves to the Hebrews as they have been to you. Be men and fight. So the Philistines fought, and Israel was defeated. And they fled, every man to his home. And there was a very great slaughter, for 30,000 foot soldiers of Israel fell. And the ark of God was captured, and the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, died. A man of Benjamin ran from the battle line and came to Shiloh the same day, with his clothes torn and with dirt on his head. When he arrived, Eli was sitting on, the seat, on his seat by the road, watching for his heart trembled for the ark of God. And when the man came into the city and told the news, all the city cried out. When Eli heard the sound of the outcry, he said, What is this uproar? Then the man hurried and came and told Eli. Now Eli was 98 years old, and his eyes were set so that he could not see. And the man said to Eli, I am he who has come from the battle. I fled from the battle today. And he said, How did it go, my son? He who brought the news answered and said, Israel has fled before the Philistines, and there has also been a great defeat among the people. Your two sons also, Hophni and Phinehas, are dead, and the Ark of God has been captured. As soon as he mentioned the Ark of God, Eli fell over backwards from his seat by the side of the gate, and his neck was broken, and he died, for the man was old and heavy. He had judged Israel forty years. Now his daughter-in-law, the wife of Phinehas, was pregnant, about to give birth. When she heard the news that the Ark of God was captured and that her father-in-law and her husband were dead, she bowed and gave birth, for her pains came upon her. And about the time of her death, the women attending to her said, Do not be afraid, for you have borne a son. But she did not answer or pay attention. And she named the child Ichabod, saying, The glory has departed from Israel because the ark of God had been captured, and because of her father-in-law and her husband. And she said, 
the glory has departed from Israel, for the ark of God has been captured. These are the true words of the living God. Thank you so much, Isaac, for uh, reading that passage for us. Well, we have a very absorbing passage today. We have uh, a battle. The battle is lost. Then we have uh, a re-strategy, and then they fight another battle, and uh, they want the Ark of the Covenant to go into battle with them. Uh, they lose that battle. There's a great slaughter, and uh, not only is there a great slaughter, but all the principal characters in this chapter, chapter 4, seemed to die along the way, including right at the end, this very tragic story of this lady who is, has premature uh, birth pains and then dies in labor, and, uh, but gives birth to this child who seems to be cursed for the rest of his life with a, a terrible name that his mother gave him. So it's a, bit of a, it's a bit of a gloomy passage. If you put it all together, I think the big point is this. If you miss the means of mercy you will get judgment. If you miss the means of mercy, the consequence or the result is judgment. I think that is the big idea that the author is trying to get across to us today. I want to make four points. I'm going to keep the fourth point as a mystery in suspense, but I can tell you the first three up front. The first point I want to extract from this text is that these folks here mistook or made the mistake of their enemy. They were mistaken about their enemy. The second point is that they were mistaken about the means of mercy. They were mistaken about the means of mercy. And then the third point, which, as I say, is the culmination of these, is that uh, if you miss the means of mercy, judgment will follow. They were mistaken about the enemy. They were mistaken about the means of mercy. And if you miss the means of mercy, third point, then uh, the consequence, and there is a consequence, is judgment. So that is where we are headed today. So let's look at this first point of mistaking the enemy. Mistaking the enemy. So let me tell you a quick story about me at age 23. When I was studying my law degree, I also was what in South Africa we call the border master. There was a school for these uh, adolescent uh, teenage boys, uh, male-only boarding house, and uh, I was a border master. I was put in charge of uh, these uh, young uh, delinquents. And uh, part of the job was to actually entertain them on the weekend. And on one particular Saturday, I had to take them to Laser Quest. Now, Laser Quest in South Africa, I don't know if you have it here, but you get this pack and you get this weapon and it's a laser gun and you shoot each other and you're in two teams and then whoever shoots the more people kind of wins the battle. Anyway, so I take these uh, 12, 13, 14-year-olds off to this uh, laser quest and uh, we divide into two teams and the one little chap, he's about this high, let's call him Smith for the purpose of the, of the story. Smith says to me, he says, sir, sir, I'm going to follow you, I'm going to be a wingman. So I said, Smith, I need a man like you. So Smith and I head off, and we're fighting this battle. Unfortunately, my pack was malfunctioning. So when you're alive, a green light comes on. But if you get shot, a red light comes on. Well, my green light would come on, and then it would just go red immediately. And then when you're red, you can't shoot, and you've got to wait 20 seconds or whatever it is. And then my green light would come on, and then I'll try and shoot someone, and then it would just go off again. I didn't land a shot the whole game, okay? Malfunctioning pack. I was so frustrated. Anyway, Smith and I are wandering around, you know, kind of on the losing side. At the end of this whole thing, you get a printout of uh, who was the worst player. Okay, me. I was in like minus thousands of points. Okay. Then there's also the printout is who is the highest point scorer. And it's Jolly Smith. 
The next page of the printout is who shot who the most times. It turns out Smith was on the other team. And he was standing behind me and shooting me every time my pack turned on. <laughs> shooting me in the back. Couldn't figure this out. The moral of the story is you've got to know who your enemy is. You've got to know who your enemy is. Well, here, the Israelites don't know who their real enemy is. And again, reading with the benefit of context, the clues as to the situation are given to us in chapter 2 and chapter 3, just before chapter 4. But let's read uh, the first three verses of uh, chapter 4 again, and then I'll explain this point. Now Israel went out to battle against the Philistines. They camped at Ebenezer, the Philistines at Aphek. The Philistines drew up in line, and when the battle was spread, Israel was defeated before the Philistines, who killed about 4,000. So the first battle, 4,000 dead. And when the people came to the camp, the elders of Israel said, Why has the Lord defeated us today? Their instinct was correct. Their instinct was correct. Because if you read in chapter 2 and chapter 3, and I'm just going to assume none of you have read the Bible or none of you have known the context just before this. You may have never opened a Bible in your life. What has happened in chapter 2 and chapter 3 is that the temple, God's temple for God's people, is being abused and is being corrupted by these two wicked men, the wicked priests called Hophni and Phinehas. Hophni and Phinehas. And they are running a racket. They are not serving God. They are serving themselves. And people would, good people like you and I, would come to the temple, would give offerings, and Hophni and Phinehas would kind of take a slice of the offerings for themselves. Not only were they stealing, effectively, the offerings that people were giving to God, but they were also sleeping with the women who were serving in the temple. I mean, this is as corrupt as it can get. It's like a church in Singapore takes up an offering for the poor, and the leaders take 50% of the offering and put it in their Hawaii holiday alcohol fund. It would be the similar kind of thing. You're just basically stealing money from good people who are giving to God, or so they think, and it's completely corrupt. And so these people are not right with God. And when they go out there and they have this battle, and we all have battles in life, they had a battle against the Philistines, they lose. And the instinct is, oh no, God is not with us. That was correct. But you know what they then do? They then go on to attack the Philistines again. Instead of sorting out their relationship with God, they progress to their own agenda, their own battles. They don't know who their real enemy is. They are not right with God. They need to return to God first before they then go and pick a fight or come up with their own agenda. They've got the wrong enemy. And so the conclusion to this first point, I think, is this. Is that when you are not right with God, when you are not right with God, getting right with God is priority over a human battle. When you are not right with God, the priority is God, first of all. The priority is not to run off to another battle of your choice. I know of uh, a romantic relationship between two people where the two people involved are not necessarily right with God. And there is a little bit of a battle between them. 
with their, in their relationship, where their relationship is going, what the purpose of this relationship is. But instead of focusing on the relationship, their first battle should be to be right with God. It's to be right with God. is to know, as it were, your first enemy. Because sometimes we are against God. Sometimes we're not right with God. And we need to sort that out first. Which then paves the way for us to then address the other battles in life. And the Lord knows all of us have many, many, many battles to fight. But the first thing, first things first, is let's be right with God. That was their mistake. That was their first mistake. Okay, point number two. Not only did they mistake who they were really not, they were not right with or at odds with, that was their first mistake. Their second mistake was that they mistook, they were mistaken about the means of mercy that God had provided. God had given them means of mercy, but they were mistaken about it. They were mistaken as to how it applied. If you carry on reading with me in uh, verse 3 until 5, it goes on and it says this, let us, this is their plan. Okay, we're not quite right with God. Well, let's just ignore that. Don't worry about that. Let's, we, the Philistines are our focus, they say. Let us bring the Ark of the Covenant to the Lord here from Shiloh. Shiloh at that point was a, a temporary temple where the Ark was. That it may come among us and save us from the power of our enemies. So the people sent to Shiloh and brought from there the Ark of the Covenant to the Lord of Hosts, who is enthroned on the cherubim, and the two sons of Eli, these two wicked men who were in charge of the temple, Hophni and Phinehas, were there with the Ark of the Covenant. Okay, now you might be new to Christianity and have no idea what the Ark of the Covenant is. So let me just explain that to you briefly. The Ark of the Covenant was basically a big box made out of wood. And in the box was put God's law, God's holy royal law. The law, which if you break the law, then you're in a lot of trouble with God. You're not right with God if you break his law. But God knows that people break his law. And so had provided as a symbol a cover over the top of the box to protect people from the power of the law and when the law gets broken. And the top of that box gets called the atonement cover, or more literally, the mercy seat. So God's mercy is protecting the people from the power of the law and when the law gets broken. And it's encapsulated in this box. Over the top of the box, they put these golden angels, these cherubim, with their wings that were folded upwards. And God, when this box was originally made with Moses... God said to Moses, I'm going to sit on the mercy seat, above the law, on the atonement cover, under the shadow of the wings, and I'm going to talk to you there. It's, it's a symbol of God's mercy, that when people break his law, fellowship with God cannot be interrupted, and he can still talk with people. That was the symbol that the ark was uh, conveying. What's more is that this ark should be put in the most holy place, the, 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 the kind of the, the inner heart or sanctum of the temple. It was to be blocked off, and it could only be visited once a year by one man who would make confession and repentance for the sins of all the people. It was the most holy thing. It was this holy, holy, holy object. It was a symbol of means of mercy to the people. That's the true purpose of the ark. It's not meant to be used like a cannon. 
It's not a laser gun to wheel out against your enemy and to shoot your enemy with. That's a misunderstanding or a mistaken understanding of what God's means of grace are. It's there so that people can be reminded that God has mercy on them. That when we are not right with Him, He wants to forgive and have mercy. They misunderstand the significance of mercy. They don't care about having a right relationship with God or not. All they care about is territory and the land of the Philistines. And so they pitch in to another war with the Philistines. To put it simply, what these people have done is they've reduced this holy means of mercy to become the means of victory in their worldly battle. They've reduced the means of mercy, this beautiful picture and symbol of God's mercy to people. They've reduced it. They've limited it. They've uh, downsized it and diminished it to become a weapon in their personal wars, in their worldly battles. In other words, what they've said is basically, let's get past all this mercy and this right or wrong relationship with God. Let's get past all of that. Let's just leave that one behind and let's get to what I want. Let's leave mercy behind. Who cares about a right or wrong relationship with God? Let's just get to what I want. They'd weaponized the ark. They'd weaponized the ark. To put it slightly differently, they had a false reliance on the apparatus or the things of God and not God himself. They had a false reliance on the things of God, on the power of God, on the ability of God, the apparatus of God, while eliminating God from the equation. We don't need you, God. We just need your power. We just need your cannon, your, uh, your, your weaponry to help us in our wars. They used God in their war, whereas, point number one, actually they were not right with God in the first place themselves. In many senses, there was a war between them and God because they were out of line. And the sad thing is, they're actually no better at this point than the pagans. Because then the Philistines say, oh no, and this is the whole bit when the ark comes into the camp and this religious fervor rises up in the Israelites because now they think, now that we've factored God out, we can use his power and we can win this, this victory. And they all have this great shout. And uh, then the Philistines go, oh, they've got a God in the camp. And uh, in those, the, the, their understanding is, well, everyone, every nation needs a pet God, a pet God who can serve the people and do the bidding of the people. We need a God to win our battles. They've got some God who has this history of winning. Oh, no, we're in trouble. But don't worry, we're going to smack them anyway. And both the pagans, the Philistines, and the Israelites are thinking in the same terms. The only thing you need God for is to win you battles and do favors for you. God is a magician. God is a powerful guy. And he's just going to win you battles. That's all you need God for. That kind of thinking. Now, again, if you are the person writing up all this material, we've just come out of chapter 3. And uh, again, I'll assume total ignorance here of chapter 3. In chapter 3, we have this amazing story of this little boy who's growing up in the temple, who sleeps in the temple. In fact, he sleeps quite close to the ark of God. But he knows the difference between the ark of God and the person of God. 
Because God speaks to him. And he has a real relationship between God and himself, even as a young boy. And he knows the person of God. And he knows that this God, somehow with all the apparatus of the temple, has mercy and wants to be on good terms. But knowing God, knowing God the person, is way, way, way more important than what God can do for you. That's how Samuel is growing up, knowing the person of God. The contrast is so stark between chapter 3, Samuel knowing God as a person, and chapter 4, where the Israelites choose to disregard God as a person and to focus on God who can just serve them and give them their desired outcomes. In conclusion, to point number two, these people have substituted the apparatus of God for the person of God. They've substituted the power of God for the person of God. And uh, here, let me tell you a story about myself. Uh, in, this, uh, in this line, when I became a Christian at age 16 for the next couple of years, now that I'd received mercy from God, I was like, okay, God, let's get down to real business. I need a girlfriend. The reason that uh, we're in a relationship is for you to give me a girlfriend. I'm entitled to a girlfriend because now we are in good terms. I would rather have a girlfriend than the person of God. Basically was how the conversation ran Okay, for the first couple of years. And then I had to realize, whoa, hang on, there's something not quite right about this. You see, we can be very grateful for the mercy of God and then just dispense with it and then get on to the more important things which are all self-indulgent. Knowing God as a person is the ultimate best thing in the world. That's where we start. But we shouldn't know Him because of our sin. And yet God, because of His mercy, has allowed us to know Him as a person. What about this? God's apparatus of mercy to me, I'll give you another example. God's apparatus of mercy to me was the church. The apparatus of mercy, the means of mercy was the church who loved me and gave me the gospel and I became a Christian. God's apparatus to me was the church. Now the church must produce me with friends. I'd rather have friends than the person of God. See, God has a lot of apparatus out there, a lot of power, a lot of stuff that he does. But often our elective, our choice is, well, we'd rather have the good things God can give us than actually have the person himself. And we dispense with mercy and we mistake the true means of mercy. Okay, well, the problem with this line of thought, and this is point number three, is that if you miss the means of mercy, judgment follows. If you miss the means of mercy, judgment will follow, as the story shows. Because in verse uh, 11, uh, there's a, uh, we read, and these are the facts, uh, let's read verse 10. The Philistines fought. Israel was defeated. They fled, every man to his house. And there was a great slaughter. 30,000 foot soldiers of Israel fell. And the ark of God was captured. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, died. Then we carry on reading. Verse 13 to 15. When he arrived, this is the messenger, who, by the way, ran about 42 kilometers from the battle line to bring this news. He was pretty tired. When he arrived, Eli was sitting on his seat by the road watching, for his heart trembled for the ark of God. 
He was worried about the ark of God. And when the man came into the city and told the news, all the city cried out. When Eli heard the sound of the outcry, he said, what is this uproar? Then the man hurried and came and told Eli. Now Eli was 98 years old and his eyes were set so that he could not see. So here's the situation. is uh, Eli is kind of in the middle here. He's got wicked sons. He can't quite contain them. Eli and Phinehas, at least Hophni and Phinehas. He can't quite control them. Eli knows that actually, no, the ark is the symbol of mercy. Actually, relationship with God is really important. But it's, the ark has been taken by Hophni and Phinehas, and he's worried now. You guys, you shouldn't do that. You shouldn't do that. And he's now worried about the state of Israel. And uh, he's blind, and yet the text says that he's watching for the ark. It's this kind of irony or this uh, tragic comedy that's going on. The blind man is watching for the ark. And he knows, no, 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 the ark belongs in the temple. It shouldn't be out there on the battlefield. And he's watching. And he's watching, and his heart is pounding. And again, to give you a little bit more context, again, I assume total ignorance, is that in chapter 2 and chapter 3, God sends a messenger to Eli to say, Eli, you, this whole temple with Hophni and Phinehas is wicked and evil and corrupt. And I'm going to deal with you, and I'm going to cut off your line. You're going to have no more priests from your line. Eli came from the line of Aaron. No more priests coming from you because of the wickedness that your sons are doing and that you are allowed to be doing. And the sign is going to be this is that both of your sons are going to die on the same day. So Eli, and this is maybe about 20 years before, the experts think. So Eli has been living for 20 years knowing that God's judgment is coming, that uh, they've missed the means of grace, the means of mercy. They've mishandled all the apparatus of the temple for their own ambitions. And there's the sentence of judgment which is hovering over him. He is worried out of his skin. He's worried for his sons. He's worried for the, for the abuse of the temple things. And he's sitting there, wondering. And then the nation gets slaughtered, 30,000 of them. They're now on the back foot. And then he gets this news. Uh, we can read in verse 17. He who brought the news answered and said, Israel has fled before the Philistines, talking to Eli. And there has also been a great defeat among the people. Your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, are dead. And the ark has been captured. When he hears the news that both of his sons have died on the same day, it's the fulfillment of the prophecy, which we read in chapter 2 and chapter 3, that his time is up. His house ends there. At that moment, he falls over and dies. Hophni and Phinehas are now dead. Eli is now dead. And then we uh, have a, a pan camera shot uh, we can read this in verse 18. As soon as he mentioned the ark of God, Eli fell over backward from his seat, the side of the gate, and his neck was broken, and he died. For the man was old and heavy. And then we have a pan camera shot into, okay, Eli's dead, his two sons are dead. And what about his grandchildren? Well, we get this final vista of uh, God's judgment falling because the means of mercy have been abused and taken lightly and misunderstood with uh, the daughter in law of Eli, the wife of Phinehas, we don't know her name. She was pregnant, that's verse 19. 
And uh, we can read in verse 21, she goes prematurely into labor. She's lost her husband. She's lost her father-in-law. In verse 21, she named the child Ichabod. The baby gets born, Prem, saying, she says, the glory has departed from Israel because the ark of God had been captured and because of her father-in-law and her husband. And she said, the glory has departed from Israel for the ark of God has been captured. It's this terrible, terrible end to the story that the line ends there. And there's the last child to be born has now got this cursed name. He's been cursed for life. God's glory has departed. You are worthless. You are worthless. And as uh, the story goes on, as we carry on reading in Samuel in the, in the weeks to, to follow, we will see that no more priests come from the line of Eli. We never hear of Ichabod again. That's it. That line is over. God's sentence has been fulfilled and carried out against them. The conclusion to this point is, uh, this is the way I put it. Judgment comes on those who miss or ignore the mercy of God. Judgment comes on those who miss or ignore the mercy of God. So that is the story in uh, 1 Samuel chapter 4. What's so obvious and apparent is God wants to give mercy to people. What is so apparent is people are wicked. What is so obvious is that people need mercy. What is so obvious is God provides symbols or uh, portraits of his mercy. God wants to give mercy. But the human heart is so sinful that it would rather overlook the means of mercy provided by God and focus on our own selfish, sinful agendas, disregarding the person and relationship with God himself so that we might pursue and win in the battles in our lives. But the big point of this passage is, if you miss, or if you overlook, or if you deliberately misunderstand, or don't accept the mercy, the means of mercy from God, then judgment is sure to follow. It's not a threat, it's just a statement of the facts. And so uh, my mystery point number four is to take us and to look at the ark, which I've uh, explained to you what it looked like, and to explain to you that the ark, as much as it was a means of mercy in those days, was actually just a symbol or a sign of one who was to come. The true ark is Jesus Christ. The true ark is the Lord Jesus Christ, who was fully God and was fully man. And he knew that this law, if you can remember the ark which carried the testimony, the law of God, the law which all of us have broken, the law which stands against us, the law which carries with it a sentence of judgment, this Jesus Christ, who is fully God and fully man, came down to earth to have all the weight of our sin and the sin of the world put on him so that sin could be punished in the body the real flesh, the human corpus, the human body, the biological body of Jesus Christ, so that sin could be placed on him, so that your sin could be punished in him. And then having paid the penalty for all of the broken law, for all of the sin which has been committed, having had all of that transferred onto him, God himself raised Jesus from the dead, 
raised him from the dead to prove, because he was innocent, he had not committed any sin, so that people could find themselves in him. And this is the offer of Christianity. And again, you might be here exploring Christianity and trying to understand it a little better. Well, this is the key idea, is that you can be in Christ. You can come and be in Christ and put your sin into him so that you can be on the cross with him and to have your sin, if you are in him, having it dealt with for all time. And if you are in him, you can be in him when he rises from the dead. And you can be saved from your sin. So that just like Jesus can have perfect relationship with the Father, if you're in him, you can have perfect relationship with God, his Father. This is the miracle and the wonder of Jesus. And uh, the picture being the law which stands against you has an atonement cover, a mercy seat upon it. That's Jesus, as it were, shielding you or separating you from the broken law. So that God himself can sit on the mercy seat under the shadow of the wing. And you can meet with him and sit with him and have a relationship and a connection and a conversation and a life with God in Christ on the mercy seat under the wings of the angels where you can have a connection with him. That is the biggest issue in your life. That is the biggest issue in your life. That is the thing to focus on. And God has provided the means of mercy so that you might know him, you might have life in him and walk with him forevermore. It is from that point that we can then face and confront all the Philistines and all the battles which our lives have. But if we substitute God out of the equation and just need God to win our fights at work or in our relationships, if we exclude God from the equation and just take advantage of his power or his big muscles or his ability to do miracles and we ignore him as a person, we're in great danger and in great peril, as I think is indicated by this story. That, I think, is the perfect time to stop. <laughs> Amen. Shall we pray? Lord, how good you are. How good you are. How good you are, Lord, to die for us, to love us, to give us the means of mercy. Lord, forgive us for, um, for ignoring you so often. Jesus, we want to receive you today. Help us to follow you. Help us to love you. If anyone here is outside of Christ, has not yet put their faith and their trust in Jesus to save them from their sins, has not repented of, of your sins, but you realize that you are wrong, that actually you are an enemy of God. You are not right with Him. Can I encourage you now to pray a simple prayer? Confess that you are a wrongdoer, that you are a sinner before God. But with faith, receive what Jesus has done for you. And for those of you who are feeling out of sorts with uh, God, can I ask you to take the eyes off your battles and your struggles and to look at the ark, to look at the means of mercy, to look at Jesus who died for you, to look at the one who is seated on the mercy seat 
the one who wants to have mercy towards you, the one who is always kind to you, won't you reorientate yourself to him first? Be right with him first. That is the priority. And because of the love of Christ, his promise of forgiveness is always real. You've been listening to a sermon podcast from Redemption Hill Church. You can find more of our sermons online at www.rhc.org.sg.